That was one of Mark Jr.'s favorite songs. He sings that all over the house, so it was a blessing. (laughs) Definitely was a blessing. Okay, well, let's open our Bibles, uh, if you have them, to Philippians chapter 4. Today I'm going to begin a series, a small series of sermons uh, regarding walking in peace uh, amidst the chaos. Walking in peace amidst the chaos. If there was ever a time where we needed to learn how to walk in the peace of God, uh, now is the time. Uh, I don't think there's a time in any of our lives where we've seen so much uh, chaos in the world. And God offers us the very peace of God in the midst of chaos. And that's what we're going to look at today in Philippians chapter 4. We're going to start at verse 4, and we're going to look at 4 through 9. I'm actually going to preach this as a whole, and we'll look at really just verse 4 today. But verse 4 through 9, I see this as a whole, and we're going to look at that over the next few weeks. So Philippians chapter 4, verse 4 through 9 says... I rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, Whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is anything, any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. May God bless the reading of his word. You know, in this Christmas season... Uh, if we're inclined to listen to the lyrics of just of many Christmas hymns and many Christmas songs, we often hear the words peace on earth and goodwill to men. Do we not? It's in many of the songs. We, I think we sung one uh, today. And you got to think often if you're like me, you know, how can we really sing that song? And we see we don't see peace on earth. There's anything but peace on earth. Uh, we see evil. We see chaos. We see as if. It seems as though, you know, the enemy is winning with the amount of turmoil and evil and chaos that truly rules the world. There's a Christmas song lately that I've come to appreciate, and it's called I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. And each stanza ends with of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And this song, this Christmas hymn was based on a poem that was written in 1863 and the poem was called Christmas Bells, and it was written by the American poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. And Longfellow wrote this poem uh, two years after he lost his wife that he was married to for 18 years uh, in a tragic house fire. And it was in the midst of the Civil War. And two years after he lost his wife, his son, against his wishes, enlisted in the Union Army and fought in the Civil War. And that December, his son got shot in the war, and survived, uh, but Longfellow had to go pick up his son and bring him back home and care for his son and nurse him back to health. And on Christmas Day in 1863, while he was nursing his son back to health, losing his wife two years prior, in the middle of a civil war, which was one of the bloodiest wars ever in history, 
he penned this famous poem uh, called Christmas Bells, which was used to write the Christmas hymn, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. And I want to read a couple of stanzas because I think it epitomizes what we can often think about when it comes to having peace on earth. And it says, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat, the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And then he says, Then from each black accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south. Speaking of the Civil War. And with the sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then he says, and in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. I feel like Longfellow penned the thoughts of many Christians, many of us that we can have during the times that we're seeing in our society, in the world, in our country, with all of the despair and peril and chaos that's happening. And isn't that how you can feel as well? How can you sing peace on earth when we see anything but? I mean, can you relate to Longfellow? I know I can. Well, what we're going to look today in the next few sermons that I'm going to preach on how we can walk in the peace of God how we can have that peace in the midst of chaos. So if we look at our text in Philippians chapter 4, uh, I read four, uh, verses 4 through 9, and I see this as one unit. And if you just are perusing through and you just read it, it almost seems like there's just kind of a hodgepodge of you know, practical commands of Christian living, good commands that Paul gives. But I see that there's a theme throughout this, and that theme is peace. Well, how do I say that? Well, if you look first at verse 5, it says the Lord is near. If you look at 7, it says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Jesus. And then down in verse 9, he says again, The God of peace will be with you. So I think this is one unit with the theme of peace. And I believe that within these six or seven commands that Paul gives, as a believer who has the Spirit of God that's working in us, that if we would do well to pay attention to these commands that we truly too can walk in the peace of God in the midst of chaos. Now to recall the context of where we are, we're coming towards the end of the epistle. And if you remember that this epistle, you have the Apostle Paul exhorting the church of Philippi to grow in unity for the sake of the gospel. You have in chapter 3, he's warning them about false teachers that are going to come and infiltrate the church with their false teaching. He calls them dogs. And then he commands them to seek Christ's likeness. And he commands them that that should be our number one goal in life, is to be more like Christ who suffered and died for us. That should be our all-consuming goal, is to be more like Christ. And then he gives the encouragement to have examples to follow in the path of sanctification. And then here at the beginning of chapter 4, what we looked at was Paul addressing disunity amongst a a couple of members in the church. And then right after that, he gives these six or seven commands. I say six or seven because he tells them to rejoice twice. I count that as two commands uh, in the text. Uh, So however you want to count it. But the point is, is that the church of Philippi has external pressure from false teachers. They have external pressure from living inside 
a pagan nation, a pagan society in uh, the city of Philippi. So they have external pressures and then they have internal pressures with the disunity that's going on within the church of Philippi. You have some type of falling out with two ladies. And so there's some disunity. There's pressure inside the church. There's pressure outside of the church. And now here Paul gives these uh, exhortations with the underlying theme of having peace. And that's where I want to go with this. So I ask you, are you walking in the peace of God? Do you allow external pressure to steal your peace and to steal your joy? Do you allow internal pressures of whether it's family or church or or whatever it is, workplace? Are there internal pressures or maybe within your own heart, within your own spirit? Do you have internal pressures that steal the peace of God? If there's anybody walking in peace in our society, it ought to be Christians. Amen. I mean, we have the only true and living hope for anybody out in this chaotic world. And it just really confuses me when I see so many believers fall into the trap of living in turmoil. There's no peace. And we ought to be walking in peace because it's a testimony of our Savior. And we're going to get into exactly what that means to walk in peace. So let's look at the text. So the first command in the verses 4 through 9, the first two commands for that matter, is to rejoice in the Lord. Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Now, many people see the epistle of the uh, Philippians as the, the overarching theme is joy. And that is absolutely true. I see that as a major theme in this epistle. Joy or rejoice is used 14 times, much more than any other epistle that Paul writes. So joy is absolutely an underlying theme in this epistle. The word here used in the Greek, rejoice, is haro, which is a verb. It means to make yourself happy, to be glad, or to rejoice exceedingly, or even to thrive. And this verb, to rejoice, is the noun firm form of joy that's used throughout the epistle, hara, which means joy, gladness, or cheerfulness. Now, at first, friends, it's important to know that this verb is in the imperative, which literally means it's a command. He's not giving them an option. He's telling them to, you must make yourself happy. That's what this means. You must rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord, Paul says. And he's telling, he's telling all of them to rejoice. He's not just telling Udiah and Sintichi, which is just a few verses earlier. He uses the second uh, person plural. He's basically saying, hey, y'all need to be happy, is what Paul is telling the church at Philippi. So we ought to make sure that we know that this is in the imperative to make yourself joyful. And then he uses this expression, in the Lord. That's two words in the Greek, uh, en, and then kurio, which is the word for Lord. And the word en is a preposition. And if you think about a sphere, you, uh, that's the preposition meaning in the Lord. So there's like a sphere that we're living in, and that's in Christ. You see that, that preposition, that phrase often when you're talking about those who are believers that are in Christ Jesus. Those who are in Christ here rejoice in the Lord. 
And that, again, if you think about a visual, a sphere, and you're rejoicing inside that sphere of in being in the Lord. And we might say, yes, I get it. We're to rejoice. Absolutely. But, you know, sometimes, sometimes circumstances are hard and I can't, there's nothing, I can't rejoice in this circumstance, whatever it might be. And it's also important to know that back in chapter three, verse one, Paul uses the same terminology. He says, rejoice in the Lord. And then chapter four, again, he's repeating himself, rejoice in the Lord. But not only does Paul repeat himself, he realizes the objection that many of us have when we have a hard circumstance. Well, I can't rejoice in this circumstance because fill in the blank. You know, you don't know my circumstance. I'm going through a hard time or even a devastation. There's nothing absolutely to rejoice in. But Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Now that word always is key to this text. That word always is pontote, which means always, at all times, in every circumstance. There's no, there's no gray area there. He uses the word that literally means in every circumstance you have, rejoice. But again, friends, it's important to know that he says rejoice in the Lord. So we're commanded to rejoice in the Lord always, at all times, whatever our circumstances, whether it's good, whether it's bad, whether we're going through a hard time, whether we're going through an easy time, we are to rejoice in the Lord. Now, it's important to differentiate what we're rejoicing in. He says in the Lord, right? So if we're going through a hard time, we don't rejoice in that hard time. We don't rejoice because we have family that are sick. We don't rejoice because we maybe have loved ones that have passed away. We don't rejoice because of a, we don't rejoice in the bad circumstance. That's not what Paul is saying. He's saying to rejoice in the Lord. I think about the scripture in Romans 8, 28, that God works all things for good to those that love God and those who are called according to his purpose. Well, God works all things good, but that doesn't mean that all things are good. I mean, there are bad things that happen. We live in a fallen world. So we don't rejoice in the bad things, but we can rejoice in our circumstances because our hope is not in those circumstances. Our hope is in the Lord, amen? So we rejoice in the Lord regardless of the circumstance. How do we do that, Mark? How do we rejoice in the Lord when we're going through a circumstance where I don't see it possible to rejoice? Well, it's important to know that when we rejoice in a bad time in life, we don't just muster up and try harder to be happy. We don't pretend all is well. We don't put our head in the sand and ignore what's going on in the outside because that's ignorance. And you've heard ignorance is bliss, right? But that's not having true joy. That's not rejoicing in the Lord. That's just hiding yourself in the sand and being oblivious and being ignorant to the things going around you. So that's not what this means. We don't muster up more uh, strength to be more joyful. And we don't just put on a smile and hide the pain. That's not what the text is telling us to do. To rejoice in the Lord, brothers and sisters, first and foremost, is a work of God. It's a work of the Holy Spirit that you and I cannot do. And we must first and foremost know that. 
It's a fruit of the Spirit to have joy, Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Now, it's interesting in that text, joy and peace are right next to each other. I don't think that's an accident. Like I said, this is a part of a whole that to walk in the peace of God, we must learn to be able to rejoice in the Lord, regardless of the circumstance that we're going through. John 15, 5, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. It's a work of God. We must be plugged in by the means of grace to be able to have God do the work in our hearts to be able to truly rejoice in every circumstance. So it's not mustering up the strength to just be more happy and put on a smiley face. That's not what it is. It must be done by the Spirit of God. Otherwise, it's not lasting joy. Now, if you look back in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, you know, Paul, in talking about his conversion and talking about him seeking the Lord, he makes this phrase, and I preached this a couple months ago, that he wanted to know Christ, but not only to know Christ, he wanted to know the power of his resurrection. So that same power that raised Jesus from the dead, if you're in Christ, that's the same power that resides in you, and that's the same power By that power only can you truly rejoice and live a life rejoicing in the Lord regardless of the circumstance. If you back up even further in this epistle, in chapter 2, verse 12, Paul, in talking to the Philippians about sanctification, he says to work out, in verse 12, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, verse 13, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, if God's reason for keeping you on earth is to be more conformed to Christ, part of our conforming to Christ, part of our working out of salvation, part of God working in us what uh, he's already declared us to be righteous is to walk in peace and to walk in joy as a believer, to be able to rejoice in the Lord. So we must understand if you're struggling walking in peace or if you're struggling with rejoicing in the Lord, that we have to remind ourselves that you don't have the strength to be joyful. You can't make yourself happy. You can, but it's only temporary. But the spiritual type of, of rejoicing in the Lord is a work of God, and we must seek for the Lord to do that work in our hearts so that we can have. Uh, eternal joy in our hearts residing and not temporal joy. And I want to just make a side note here that there is joy in other circumstances in our life. There is joy in temporal blessings that God gives us. So we do rejoice. Ultimately, our rejoicing and our joy is in the Lord. But we also do have joy on the earth with the blessings that God gives us, does he not? And so I don't want to discount that. You know, even Paul in this epistle, in chapter 2, I believe, he says, to make my joy complete, he tells the uh, Philippians in chapter 2, verse 2, he says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. So even there, Paul is encouraging them and telling them, hey, you're going to make my joy complete 
by you walking in unity, by being of the same mind, by being of the same love. So there is joy in, I would say, temporal things. But friends, the everlasting joy, the the peace that passes all understanding comes only from the Spirit of God. And so there are joyful things that happen on earth, but those are all temporary, are they not? You have joy because you have maybe a, a child that is walking in truth and submitted to God and giving their life to God. That brings us joy. Uh, but that joy is always, is always temporary. The eternal joy that, that Paul is talking about here comes only in Christ, comes only in finding our contentment and finding our true and everlasting joy, no matter the circumstance, that only comes from the Lord. So how? I want to make this practical. How do we do that? To rejoice in the Lord, regardless of our circumstances, we must grow in our knowledge of him. We must grow in our knowledge of his attributes. We must grow in our knowledge of his works and his righteousness. Psalm 19.8 says, The precepts of the Lord are right. Listen, it says, Rejoicing the heart. Let that sink in. Let me read that again. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Where do we find the precepts of the Lord? We find them in God's word, do we not? And they rejoice the heart. And it says the command of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. I want to give you a non-exhaustive list according to God's word on why we should rejoice in the Lord. And reasons that ought to prompt you to rejoice in the Lord regardless of the circumstance. Now this is, like I said, a a non-exhaustive list. You could probably do your own study and come up with about a hundred reasons why you ought to rejoice in the Lord regardless of your circumstance. But here's just a brief list of five. Number one, A, because we're commanded to. That should be motivation, right? You love Christ. You want to please the Lord. You want to obey the Lord. So we ought to rejoice in the Lord because he's commanded us to. Matter of fact, did you know that the most repeated command in the Bible is around being happy and rejoicing? It's the most repeated command. And we ought to take note of that, amen? That what God repeats, it should send some flags up and say, okay, I got to pay attention to that. Number two, we ought to rejoice because of our salvation. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 2, when Hannah, after praying for a son, gets a son, she starts out her uh, exaltation by saying she rejoices in a son. No, she says, I rejoice in your salvation, is what she says. And that's 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1. And then Mary in Luke chapter 1, where Mary gives her exaltation to Christ. Uh, She says too, she says, I rejoice in God, my savior. That's the first thing she rejoices for is because God is her savior. And we're gonna look at Mary's uh, exaltation song of prayer and praise uh, in just a few moments. And then in Luke 10, 20, Jesus sends out the 70 disciples to go out and preach the good news. And they come back and they're rejoicing because the demons were submitting to them and and they were healing people and casting out demons. And what does Jesus say? He says, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, 
but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That ought to make us enough to rejoice that our names, if you're in Christ, have been written in the Lamb's book of life. That our names are written in heaven. That we have been saved by God's grace. That ought to be enough to make us rejoice despite our circumstances. Pastor Tom Askell down in Florida recently said, quote, On my worst day, I have more reasons to rejoice than Bill Gates on his best day. End quote. Number three, we ought to rejoice because Jesus came and because he's coming again. Because Jesus came and because he's coming again. Our call to worship earlier, I read Zechariah 9 verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So we ought to rejoice because Christ came. And although he wasn't born on Christmas Day, we know that. We ought to celebrate that throughout the year that Jesus incarnate came and dwelt among men. And we should rejoice as the prophecy said in Zechariah. We ought to rejoice that our king came the first time, but also rejoice because he's coming again. That we won't always see this evil and chaos in the world. That he is coming again to conquer and to make things right. Amen. Number four, we ought to rejoice because our God lives and he reigns. Because our God lives and he reigns. Psalm 97.1. The Lord reigns. Let the earth do what? Rejoice. Let the many islands be glad. Friends, we ought to rejoice because our God is not dead. Our God is a living and reigning king, and we need to act like it. I fear that Christians don't act like our God is really alive. In my sermon prep, it reminded me of a story during the Reformation of Martin and his wife, Katharina Luther. They had a very interesting relationship, if you read about them. Uh, Very interesting, very unique Uh, During one point of the Protestant Reformation, you know, Martin Luther, he suffered with depression quite often, which is really interesting, like uh, reformers like him. And then later on, Charles Spurgeon, we know, suffered with depression. But one of uh, one of those periods where he was just down, discouraged, complaining a lot and just moping and depressed. Martin came home one day and his wife, Katerina, was dressed in all black. And Martin said, what gives? Why are you dressed in all black? And she says, I'm here. I'm ready for a funeral. And he says, well, who's dead? And she goes, God is dead. And I'm here for his funeral. Well, he reacts very uh, not kind. I don't know what exactly was said, but he, he probably accused her of blasphemy and was like, how dare you? God is not dead. And she said something right, uh, uh, around, well, he must be dead by the way you've been acting. And well, that turn him around. And it was said that later he carved this Latin word in his desk, vivit, which means he lives. And that's just a reminder to us, like, why do we act like our God is dead? Why do we act like he's not reigning and in control? Why do we act like he doesn't know what's going on in our society? And we need to start acting like he lives and he is reigning, he is ruling, and he is seated on his throne. And he's not letting these things go unnoticed. 
In his perfect counsel of his will, he's allowing them to happen. He's, in fact, ordained them to happen for his glory. And we don't need to know the answers because we're just his servants. And we just need to serve him with gladness and with joy and to act like and to know and to truly walk as if he's alive and ruling and reigning on his throne. Number five, we ought to rejoice because he will establish justice and he will render vengeance. We ought to rejoice because he will establish justice and render vengeance. Deuteronomy 32, 43 says this. Rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and he will render vengeance on his adversaries and will atone for his land and his people. It sounds kind of harsh. We ought to rejoice because he will have vengeance. But all that simply means, friends, is that God will establish justice. And part of establishing justice is he will have vengeance on those evildoers. And for us, praise God, he has poured out his wrath and he has had vengeance on our evilness and our evil doing. And he did it upon the cross of Christ. But to those who reject the cross of Christ, vengeance is coming. We need not to fear the people who are doing such evil and harm to others in, the, in our nation, in the, in the world. Because ultimately, if they don't come to Christ, God will have his final vengeance. And even in Revelation, there were, if you remember, that there were um, a myriad of people who had been slain for the, for the testimony of Christ. And they cried out to God and said, how long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? Because there's justice with God. We can rejoice. We can rejoice that vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And we need not fear and we need not fret, but we can walk in peace and we can walk in in joy. I also want you to consider Paul's circumstance while he's writing this epistle. While he's writing this epistle, where is he? He's in jail. He doesn't have a very good circumstance. Yet, if you look at chapter 2, verse 17 in our epistle, Paul says, But even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice. And then he says, And share my joy with you all. Paul's sitting here in prison telling the Philippians to rejoice and that I'm rejoicing and I'm sharing my joy with you. I mean, how convicting would that be? If the one who started the church and was your pastor was in jail and he's telling you to rejoice while he's rejoicing in jail. And then Philippians in 1.18, when Paul shares with the Philippians that there were people who were literally preaching to his demise, they were preaching to cause harm to Paul. He says this, He says, what then? Only in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, he says, I will rejoice. See, Paul didn't care that these preachers were preaching for the wrong reasons. They were preaching the true Christ. So he was rejoicing in that. But not only was he in jail, my friends, we have to remember what happened to Paul in the last few years leading up to his imprisonment. Turn, to me, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 
Paul gives a little synopsis. He's defending his apostleship to the church of Corinth. And he gives a little synopsis of what happened to him. And this was about five years prior to his letter to the Philippians. He says, starting in verse 22 of chapter 11, he says, are they not all Hebrews? So talking about the false apostles, he says, so am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane, I more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beat, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 30 lashes, 39 lashes, excuse me. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without me being weak? Who is led into sin without me, my intense concern? If I have to boast, I will boast in what pertains to my weakness. Paul experienced tremendous pain Horrible circumstances, both physically, spiritually, emotionally. He was deserted by those that were closest to him. And now he finds himself in prison. He had much to complain about, very little to rejoice in. Yet he had, full, he had joy. He had the joy of the Lord. And he was able to rejoice. How was he able to do that? His joy was not dependent or contingent upon the circumstance. That's how he was able to do that. His joy was not dependent or contingent on people. His joy was not dependent or contingent upon external pressure. His joy was not dependent or contingent upon internal pressure. But his joy, friends, was anchored in the Lord. It was anchored in the Lord. And as I said, there are temporal blessings that we find joy in. But ultimately, friends, if we're being swayed in the external pressures of life and external circumstances are stealing our joy, we need to take a look at, am I truly finding contentment and joy in the Lord and the Lord Lord alone? If all your friends desert you, your family turns their back on you, you lose everything as Paul did, you suffer physically, You suffer emotionally, spiritually. You find yourself in prison. Do you have the joy of the Lord? Now, some of us can't even fathom being in that situation. And if we can, if you're like me, I'm like, I know I would not be like Paul. I would not be able to rejoice in the Lord. If I lost my family, if I lost my friends, I had nothing. I got, if I lived the Paul life lit, the, the life that Paul lived, uh, but friends, the great thing about it is that God doesn't need your, um, your abilities to be joyful. He gives grace in the moment. He gives grace in the time of need. But we can't, we can't just assume that it's going to happen by default. 
You know, just as back in chapter two, he says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who wills to work his will and purpose in your life. So it's twofold. You know, God works in your life for your sanctification, but that doesn't mean you're off the hook and you just sit back and say, well, God's going to do the work. I'm just going to sit back and relax, not read my Bible, not pray, you know, not be mentally prepared for church. I'll go to church when it's convenient. But those are the means of grace that God uses to work in your life, to work the peace of God in your life, to work joy in your life, so that when those circumstances come, you may get knocked over, but because you're grounded and rooted in the joy of the Lord and the Lord alone, he will use that to see you through. And you know, no doubt, Paul was a student of the scriptures. And no doubt, Paul knew of David's turmoil that David had. And David would often rejoice despite his circumstances. If you read enough Psalms, you'll see a lot of Psalms are, are Paul or David, King David, calling out to the Lord. Where are you, Lord? Save me, save me. And then the Psalm ends in him rejoicing and praising the Lord despite the circumstance. Psalm 5 is one of those Psalms where in verse 11, he says, but let all who take refuge in you be glad. Now that word in the Hebrew, be glad, means to rejoice. It's a verb. It means to be cheerful, to cheer up. And David says, all who take refuge in you, be glad. Now that psalm didn't start out so joyful. And then it says, let them ever sing for joy. But that psalm, if you look back in verse 1 and 2, this is no psalm of a celebration of how great God has been and the good things he has done, but it's a lament. He's calling in times of distress, in times of physical danger. But then in verse 11, he says, let all who take refuge in you be glad and let them sing for joy. Psalm 16 is another one you can take a look at. Uh, Verse 11, it says, you will make known to me the path of life. We all know this verse. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures evermore. But again, if you look back at verse one of that psalm, it didn't start out that way. God, or David was calling for help, for God to save him because his enemies were pursuing him, but still he's able to say, in your presence is fullness of joy. So we know that there are many times where circumstances are bad, uh, but there is joy in the Lord There is fullness of joy in the Lord, those who take refuge in him. I want to end by looking at Luke chapter one. I want to look at Mary's exaltation and praise after he after she visits Elizabeth. And Elizabeth says something that I think may have. I don't know, struck reality in the heart of Mary where Elizabeth says, verse 43, and how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? Mary was the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ in an earthly sense. And I think that struck the reality of like what God was doing in Mary's life. And so Mary gives this great exaltation, starting in verse 46. 
Mary says, my soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my savior. There's that word rejoiced again. And it's a little different word that's used in our text today from Philippians. It literally means to rejoice with exceedingly amount of joy. It's even more. And why does she rejoice? Well, if you look at verse 48 and verse 49, it starts out with the word for. And that word in there in the Greek is contingent upon what was just read before. So she rejoices in the Lord. Why? Verse 48, for, for, verse 49, for. And then it says in verse 50, and he has done this and he has done this. So we should pay attention on why Mary is rejoicing in the Lord. The first thing she rejoices in is because God, it says, verse 48, for he has regard for the humble state of his bond slave. So this speaks to the mercy of God. She rejoiced in God because he was merciful. And then if you look at verse 49, it says, for the mighty one has done great things for me and holy is his name. So the first part speaks about the great works of God. We ought to remember and rejoice in the mighty works that God has done. And then it says, holy is his name. She's rejoicing because of who God is, the attributes of God. And verse 50, his mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear him. Verse 51, again, talking about his mighty deeds. She's rejoicing uh, God for his mighty deeds. But look at what uh, she says in the middle of verse 51. And verse 52, he has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and he has exalted those who were humble. So Mary here is speaking about the sovereignty of God. She's talking about also the uh, justice of God. She's praising God because God has and will establish justice and he will bring down ultimately those who are proud and he has complete sovereign control over the rulers of the world. This is a great reminder why we should rejoice in the Lord as Mary did here. So many reasons. Like I said, I gave you just a few earlier, but you literally could go through this You could go through many other places in scripture and you can literally have a journal and write down reasons why I can rejoice in the Lord today. But I think the crux of it is, friends, is that we have our eyes too much on the world. You know, Colossians 3, the beginning, verse 1 and 2 says to set your mind on the things above, not on the things below. We need to get our eyes off this temporal earth as much as we are, and we need to put our eyes upon Christ, and we need, to, we need to seek the things of God first. And the things of this world, as the song says, will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So in conclusion, to walk in the peace of God, we must first rejoice in the Lord always, as Paul says, in all circumstances, we must rejoice. Well, the poem I read earlier by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, it didn't end with his despair. Again, the setting, two years after the death of his wife and his son was shot in the Civil War, his poem, it doesn't end in despair. He pens these words towards the end of his poem. He says, after talking about he bowed his head in despair, there's no peace on earth, hate is strong and mocks the song, of peace on earth, goodwill to men. After he pens the 
the sounds of the cannons in the Civil War silencing the bells of uh, the church bells ringing and the carol singing. He says this. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. So Longfellow exemplifies how we can rejoice in the Lord and have peace in the middle of a chaotic, evil world. He doesn't ignore the evil that's going on. He's very aware. He doesn't put his head in the sand. He's very aware of it. He even grieves over it. But ultimately, friends, he knows the truth that's revealed in Scripture that God's not dead. God's not dead. He doesn't sleep. He's on his throne. And he will establish justice when he says the wrong shall fail and the right prevail. There will be one day, friends, there will be peace on earth. God will establish his throne on earth and there will be peace on earth and goodwill towards men. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Father and reigning King, we thank you, Lord, that you are alive and you are seated upon your throne. How often we forget, Lord, and walk in the, the world as if you're not alive and if you're not reigning, if you're not sovereign, if you're not in control, if you're not working these things out for your glory. Forgive us, God. Forgive us for doubting. Forgive us for not having faith that your hand is in all of this and that you will establish justice and you will have vengeance and you will reign on this earth and will establish peace on earth. Lord, I pray that you would help us, God by the power of your Holy Spirit, to rejoice in the Lord always in every circumstance, whether good or bad. Help us, Lord, to not get in a state of ignorance, to turn a blind eye on the bad things that are happening around us, but to acknowledge those things, God, but to also acknowledge the truth of your word that you will work things out for good, even though we may not know on this side of heaven. Father, I thank you that you have given us your word that helps us to comfort us, to guide us, to lead us, to give us peace. Lord, I pray that we would be a witness to the world by our walk, that we would be not ignorantly happy, but to have joy in the Lord and for others to see that joy in the midst of despair and that it would cause an opportunity to share Christ with them to share Christ and encourage other believers who are struggling, to share Christ and share the gospel with those who are not in Christ. And Father, may you do it for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.